1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Working out what artificial intelligence can and can't do is more complicated than it seems, and it's an issue that uh, some of the professions are grappling with. On the face of it, law is an area that rests on fine human judgment. But in fact, many of its tasks can be performed by AI, and if that's true for law, then presumably it's also true for many other areas too. Well, Daniel Suskind of Oxford University has written on this in The Future of the Professions, and I must say a bigger than usual subtitle, How Technology Will Transform the World of Human Experts. Uh, Welcome. Great pleasure to be with you. And it's a father and son book, which is quite unusual. How how did that come about? Um,
1: It was a sort of perfect storm. Uh, I was uh, working in uh, government at the time. I was working in the uh, policy unit in, in 10 Downing Street across lots of different policy areas on tax policy, on education policy, on health policy. Uh, and it was clear that lots of change was in the air in all the different professions that I was exposed to. At the same time, my dad had been working on thinking about the impact of technology and artificial intelligence in, in the legal profession for almost 40 years. He wrote his doctorate back in the 1980s on artificial intelligence in the law. And so one of the observations he made was that, you know, after talking to an audience of lawyers, at the end, a stray doctor, a stray teacher, a stray accountant, a stray architect would come up and say, look, what you're talking about in the professions, in the legal profession, it's all very interesting, but it applies equally well in our profession too. And so we had this idea of joining forces to look at the professions more generally, based on these experiences that we had, and and that's exactly what we did. And the result was this book, "The Future of the Professions."
0: And, and I noticed you use the phrase technology and AI. So there's a difference, right? And and we're, we're talking on yeah, a thing called Zencaster, uh, which is technology, and it enables us. You know, I'm uh, you're in Oxford, I'm in London, and it sounds pretty good. But AI is different. What's the difference?
1: I, it's a it's an artificial distinction it just you know artificial intelligence is clearly one type of technology. It just seemed to us that something so interesting and something so distinct was happening in the world of artificial intelligence that it was worth drawing a distinction between. The sorts of more commonplace technologies that we might be familiar with, and what was happening in the world of artificial intelligence. And I think, since we wrote that book in 2015, and uh, you know we revisited it in an updated edition just a few months ago, I think that distinction has turned out to be a, a useful one because clearly something important and something distinctive has been happening in the world of artificial intelligence.
0: But can you can you pin that down for us? Is it is it yeah. sort of processing of mass data or something? Or what what is
1: it? I I mean, to put it it bluntly, these systems which are based on various techniques, these artificial intelligence systems are taking on more and more tasks that until recently, we thought only human beings alone could ever do making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and designing buildings, composing music and writing news reports. All of these advances these encroachments on to activities that the professions do that until recently we thought only human beings could do—they're driven by artificial intelligence—and so it was that it was that sort of sense that these AI systems were doing something quite different that made us want to, to look at it a little bit more closely.
0: Okay. So I didn't really realize that. Basically, what you're saying is that artificial intelligence is just very advanced technology. You know, There's technology, and it's very advanced technology. There's nothing specific to the nature of artificial intelligence that helps you sort of hive it off from other technological
1: developments. No. I mean, if if you ask me what, what has driven the progress in artificial intelligence, I'd say three things. It's one, extraordinary advances in processing power two its extraordinary advances in data storage capability and three its impressive advances in algorithm design in the sort of instructions that we set these systems to follow um there is nothing you know, particularly special about each of those things uh if you were to, you know, all of them are driven in part by technological progress um it's just that the impact of artificial intelligence is so uh as as a particular example of technology it's just so profound that we thought it was worth looking at in a distinct way
0: okay well let's go through some of the different uh, areas the different professions and just hear your view having you know, thought about this and written this uh, book you know what you've what you've worked out really uh, as to where ai and this advanced technology can can play a role so lawyers you know mean, judges famously have to judge right and they have to make these very very sort of subtle nuanced decisions presumably technology can't really do that
1: Mm. and I think one of the things just to sort of step back for a moment I mean one of one of the observations that we make having spent a lot of time talking with professionals and spending time in the professions is that professionals and and sort of defenders of the professions often make what we call the sort of argument from hard cases, which is to identify a particular task or individual activity, which is very hard to automate in the professions, and then to sort of reason back from that, that because of that, um, that that profession is somehow immune or uh, insulated from technological change. And, and you see professionals of all different stripes doing this going to the particular activity that they do, which is uh which is very hard to automate and then arguing that they're protected from technological change and and this is a this is just a mistake that applies across the professions you know no profession is a sort of monolithic indivisible lump of stuff you know when you look under the bonnet of any job any professional job even the most expert ones what you see is a wide variety of different tasks and different activities and so thinking from the bottom up in terms of individual tasks rather than the top down in terms of entire jobs is very helpful. And so, you know, if you take the legal example, it's certainly true that there are some individual tasks that lawyers do, which is which are quite hard to see how they might be automated anytime soon. But that's not everything a lawyer does. You know, if you look at the job of a of a sort of you know, a standard lawyer, things like document review, document assembly, document retrieval, these sorts of activities make up a big part of what it means to be a lawyer. And yet they're precisely the sorts of activities where these technologies are encroaching. But, and this is, it goes to your question before about what's so special about artificial intelligence. What we see is that these technologies are now not only taking on what economists would call the routine activities, and in law, those tasks that I just mentioned are good examples. They're also taking on the non-routine activities, the sorts of activities that until recently we would have thought were hard to automate. So, you know, Lex Machina, for instance, it's a system that's said to be able to predict the outcome of patent disputes as accurately as many patent lawyers. Um, Now, that is the sort of activity that I don't think we'd call routine. And and to some extent, it's, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's been pretty surprising uh, to lawyers to see how uh, these activities can take on th- These systems can take on tasks that might have required exactly, as you say, faculties like judgment in the past.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, so there are two things there. Drafting, I me mean, take two examples, I'm sure there are many others. But, you know, let, let's say, yeah, you know, a very standard legal procedure like drafting a will. Yeah, you could put some inputs into it and AI would come out with a with a pretty workable will. It may be a lawyer needs to read it to check, but it's gonna be pretty good.
1: And and then you can predict what, judicial decisions really. And there are and you know there are systems that do that sort of predictive activity. I, I think one of the interesting things that comes up in the legal profession is less the technical question of what these systems and machines can and cannot do. But more the sort of moral questions about whether or not, even if it's technically feasible, whether or not it's morally permissible. So just to give you an example, you know, there are systems and machines at the moment that help inform parole decisions in the United States. They're already used. And, you know, some people might feel uncomfortable about that. Others might feel more uncomfortable, might feel more comfortable. But how would we feel, for instance, about a system that's making decisions about life sentencing, for instance, I think people would feel far more uncomfortable about that. And those are less questions about technical limits, and they're more questions about moral limits. And I think in the legal profession, it's a good example of where the moral limits on these technologies will bind, will get in our way uh, far quicker than the technical limits do. And presumably,
0: that's partly because there will always be hard cases where A human would say, well, yeah, we've got to take that into account, you know, some particularly unusual set of circumstances, perhaps, and and make this, uh, you know, counterintuitive judgment, isn't that part of it?
1: Certainly. And there are hard cases, which we might think require human judgment or human reflection and creativity in, in resolving. But again, it's important to remember that not all cases are hard cases. You know, if you go to a website like eBay, for instance, Every year uh, on eBay, 60 million disputes arise, 60 million disputes, uh, and they're resolved online without any traditional lawyers using what's known as an e-mediation system. So just to put that 60 million in context, that's 40 times the number of civil claims that are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system. It's three times the number of lawsuits filed in the entire US legal system. They're resolved on this one website without any traditional lawyers. Uh, you know a lot of legal disputes um are not of the hard um obscure type uh they're relatively routine uh and at the moment, if we're honest and frank with ourselves uh the legal profession does not do enough in providing people knowledge about their you know legal entitlements and support in resolving them and so one of the hopes is that these sorts of technologies in the legal profession might provide more access to justice. Um, yeah, it, it it was the main uh, one of the most important motivations in writing this book, the future of the professions. It was actually when we started looking at it less about what it meant for the future of lawyers and the future of legal practice, and far more about what it meant for customers and clients of traditional legal providers. It was our motivation was based on a sense that the legal profession wasn't doing a good enough job as it as it traditionally stood and, and we were interested in how we could use technologies to do things quite differently
0: it's, it's quite amazing what you just said about ebay and in in that it, it was it 40 million and
1: 60, 60 million it, it,
0: 60 million and out of that 60 million i mean are there some ca- some cases that are so hard that Eventually, it has to go to a human to be resolved.
1: Yeah. So or so if I remember correctly, of the 60 million, I think 52 million are resolved without any human um, interaction or any sort of human intermediation at all. And then the remaining 8 million require some kind of human mediation. But what's quite interesting is that those human beings who are involved in that mediation are not traditional lawyers. Uh, they're different different types of people. And this is another argument of the book, which is that uh, technology doesn't just simply destroy work. Often what it does is it changes the tasks and activities involved in solving problems. And as a result, just quite different types of people with different types of skills and capabilities are required to to do that work. In this case, people that don't necessarily look, look look a lot like traditional lawyers.
0: So we've uh, talked about the legal profession, uh, AI, and advanced technology in the medical profession. What what happens? What's happening there?
1: I think one of the most interesting, uh, interesting pieces of progress is in medical diagnostics. Um, uh, there, you know, there are systems. A system was recently developed at Stanford that, if you give it a photo of a freckle, it can tell you as accurately as leading dermatologists whether or not that freckle is uh, cancerous. Um, You know, a system was developed by DeepMind, uh, the artificial intelligence company based in London, now owned by Google. It can diagnose up to 50 different eye problems as accurately as leading ophthalmologists. Uh, I think some of the, as I said, for me, when I look at the medical profession, some of the most exciting things that are happening are with respect to diagnosis as I've I've just described
0: yeah but I mean presumably not just as accurately but more accurately because if the doctor I don't know has a bad day or is distracted they may make a false judgment whereas the machine will be more
1: reliable well quite it's it's um uh yeah machines don't get tired they don't have a bad day they don't come in a little bit hungover from the night before um you know there are uh, uh if 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 you look at the error rates and misdiagnosis rates and then misprescription rates and so on associated with the medical profession i think yeah it's 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 uh it's it's not negligible um you know if you go back to the legal profession just you know there there is evidence that suggests that um sentencing is more is less lenient uh in the run up to lunch, when judges start to get hungry. Um, you can imagine the, you know analogous, um, you know, aspects of, sort of human fallibility come in when thinking about medical diagnosis, too. Um, it does raise an interesting point, though, about what what the what the benchmark is, uh, what the standard is to which we're holding these, these systems, I mean, many people from experience, when they hear that these medical diagnostic systems aren't perfect, that they do make mistakes sometimes, are outraged and they're furious. But to hold these systems to a standard of perfection is exactly as you're suggesting. I think to hold them to a, a higher standard than we hold our our fellow human beings, our fellow human doctors. So you say you're looking at this
0: from the point of view of the you know the client of the lawyer, or presumably in this case the patient. And I can imagine that many patients would actually, if they were told a machine is that reliable, would prefer have the machine do it because they think, well, there's no chance of the doctor getting it wrong because they're having a bad day. But there will be other aspects of medical practice where they will want to see a doctor rather than a machine. Have you sort of worked out where that distinction lies?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's right. I think in many cases in the professions, I, do, I don't want to say things like the personal touch or, or empathy are, are unimportant. I don't think they're unimportant at all. But I think in many cases, they are overrated in the professions. I was once talking to a group of accountants and a particularly boisterous accountant stood up and said, look, Daniel, you don't understand my clients come to me because they want the personal touch. They want me to look them in the eye. You know, they want the supportive hand on the shoulder. And I said to him, look, you know, actually that isn't why your clients come to you. They come to you because they want their taxes done efficiently and effectively. Uh, And if they can find a way of doing it, that's more affordable than you, then I think they'll probably go with that rather than rather than coming to see you and and the personal touch Um, in in the medical profession. I think that's that sort of reasoning is I think it's true for some things that that medical practitioners do, but certainly not all of them. Um, That said, I mean, what's quite interesting is that it's not obvious necessarily that the. The doctor themselves needs to be the person who's providing that sort of empathetic personal touch. Um, One of the things we write about that's happening in the professions is that more and more professional work is being what we what what we call decomposed or disaggregated into all the different tasks and activities that make it up. Um, So you can imagine that one day in the future, you go to uh, you know a, a hospital. A GP surgery, whatever it might be, and you are met by a nurse, a nurse practitioner, who, with one of these diagnostic systems, is able to provide the sort of expert insight that might have required a doctor in the past, but is also able to offer the sort of empathetic support uh, that, if we're honest with ourselves, actually quite a lot of domain experts, subject matter experts, doctors being one of them, uh, the sort of empathetic support that actually a lot of doctors lack. um, and And it's quite an interesting opportunity to 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 sort of break down the different tasks and activities and allocate them to different types of people using these technologies.
0: Many of the people listening to this podcast are academics and they'll uh, be teaching students uh, and i I think may share the experience I've had that zoom teaching is is not great and and it it doesn't really work quite as well I mean I presume there'll be a Large cheer if you could work out some AI that would mark essays reliably, uh, but what 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 can you do in 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 teaching?
1: I th- uh, so I think um, and and your observation uh, I think is a really important one. I think one of the you know over the last few years we've been forced to use technology in education because of the pandemic, and I think one way to think about the pandemic is that it's been a sort of massive unplanned unwanted but entirely inescapable pilot scheme in the use of technology in the workplace and particularly in education and i suppose the point i'd make is that as with any pilot scheme we ought to be trying to gather as much data and evidence as we can on what has and what has not worked well Uh, and this is true for education too Um, i think there's um uh, there's a lot of uh anecdote and intuition floating about what about what has and what has not worked well and I think it would be interesting to interrogate that a little bit more closely for me for me I think one of the most interesting uses of technology and education is actually less about remote learning which isn't particularly radical it's simply doing what we've always done uh, but just at a technology you know, at a technologically supported distance what what interests me far more is is how we can use technology to personalize the learning experience uh, there's a a piece of evidence from the educational literature um, known as the two sigma problem, which is that um, any student who receives one to one tuition from a human teacher will tend to outperform ninety eight percent of their classmates. Uh, in a traditional classroom setting. In other words, um, one-to-one tuition tends to lead to a two-standard deviation or a two-sigma improvement in in educational uh, outcomes. The problem, of course, the reason it's a two-sigma problem uh, is that one-to-one tuition is not an affordable uh, educational strategy at, at, at scale. And so, one of the exciting possibilities offered by technology is that we can sort of replicate some of the features of that one-to-one tuition at far lower cost with what are known as personalised learning systems. Systems that tailor what is taught, how it's taught, you know, the pace at which it's taught, and so on, to the particular needs and uh, you know strengths and weaknesses of any given student. And there are various systems being built in that spirit at the moment. Uh, and and for me, that's that's one of the more exciting, uh, exciting dimensions of technology and education.
0: Uh, another area in which I've had some involvement, journalism. I mean, I remember seeing about, I don't know, is it five, it'd be mid, maybe longer, five years ago, a uh, hundred word sports report on a match, football match, let's say. And it was, know, yeah, very impressive. I mean, it was just, it read very well and it gave the basic facts of of that story but uh, having seen that i thought oh gosh we we may all be out of work soon it hasn't really developed beyond that has it
1: mm. it's interesting you're right i mean so i remember as well associated press began to use algorithms to computerize the production of earnings reports uh, and using those algorithms i think they produced about 15 times as many earnings reports as when they relied upon traditional financial journalists alone um i think Quite a lot of this stuff is happening. It's just happening in the background. So if you go onto a website like bloomberg.com today for your financial news, I think about a third of the content on there is now generated by an automated system rather than written by a human journalist. It's just not celebrated. It's just not, you know, we just take it as part of the furniture, you know, the sort of technological furniture. Um, I... So I think I think some of these things are are happening in the background. I think some of the developments that we've seen, you know, we're we're talking in the week where there's been a lot of excitement about GPT Chat, which is the system that has been developed by OpenAI, uh, an artificial intelligence uh, company based in in the states. Uh, if you have a look at, uh, I mean, the way it works for those who haven't had a chance to to take a look is that you give it a prompt in you know in english and it will um generate text it will generate images uh, and so on but you can ask it to for instance write an article on x um in the style of this particular author or this particular atmosphere or whatever it might be and i mean some of the content that it's generating is really quite remarkable Uh, and um i so if we go back to what we were talking about before that until now we're sort of used to the idea that technology takes on routine activities in journalism that might be producing earnings reports or uh, writing sports uh, reports and so on what we see with something like gpt chat are technologies taking on non routine activities as well writing uh, you know, composing text that um is interesting and funny and creative uh, and certainly the sort of thing that um is is sufficient to to rival the you know journal- journalistic um talents of of uh, of human beings
0: yeah uh, so so let's just run through some others uh accountants well i mean presumably number crunching is something ai is brilliant at
1: I think I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I um, you know these systems rely upon lots of data, and if there's if there's something that accountants uh, you know do, it's it's handling it's handling lots of data. Um, people talk about you know, the traditional way in which we do an audit, for example, um, far too many financial transactions to review them all, so you take a small sample you've got methods for trying to ensure that that sample's representative uh, and then you extrapolate and you draw broader conclusions about the general health of a company based on that narrow snapshot um, we're seeing changes to that we're seeing not you know companies trying not to take you know little snapshots and extrapolating but instead trying to run algorithms through entire bodies of transactions you know entire populations of transactions hunting for uh, irregularities and inconsistencies in that way. We're also seeing a move towards continuous auditing. Again, quite interesting. Rather than do it, taking snapshots at particular discrete intervals through the year, perhaps a quarter, perhaps every half year, perhaps annually. Instead, we're seeing algorithms that run through data continually. You know, looking, you know, continuously monitoring for for irregularities and inconsistencies. So I think there's lots of uh, interesting um, innovation to happen there as well architecture tell us about the hamburg concert hall it's incredible i mean it's a space that you walk into and you look at it and you think you know gosh only a human being with a remarkably refined aesthetic sensibility would be capable of crafting a space like this um and it it's worth having a google just to just to see what it looks like it is it's a a beautiful contemporary space and What's interesting about it is that it was not designed by a human being. it was designed by uh, an algorithm uh, what What happened was the architects in question had a system and they set the system various criteria you know we want the system we want the the space to be made of these materials we want it to have these acoustic properties, um, even some more granular things, like if there was a panel within reach of an audience member, they wanted it to have a particular texture uh, when you touched it. And and essentially, the system, based on those criteria, generated a set of possible designs. Uh, and all that was left for the architects to do was to sift through them and, and choose the one that they happen to like the most.
0: So in, in all these areas, I'm, I'm getting the impression that, you know, that, that, that technology and AI can do more and more tasks and Yet there is still a role for a human, and also the other point you seem to be making is that what we think of as creativity and traditionally think that's a human activity that that is being chipped away at, and and things that we consider creative are now being done by machines.
1: I I think this latter point is perhaps the most important one, uh, which is that for a long time there were activities that required faculties not only like creativity. But also like judgment, also like empathy, that we thought were out of reach of these technologies, and I think the reason, and I, I write a lot about this in 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 my work, uh, the future of the professions, and more recently uh, a world without work. You know, understanding why it is that we thought these activities were out of reach, and in turn, understanding why it is that that turns out to be wrong, I think is really important. And and, and to just to explain very briefly, uh, until very recently, most people thought that if we wanted to build a system to outperform a human expert, it meant sitting down with a human expert, getting them to explain to you how they performed a particular task or activity, and then trying to capture that in a set of instructions or rules for a system to follow. But here was the problem, uh, or at least what they thought was the problem. If you sat down with a doctor, for instance, and said, look, tell me how it is you make such a good medical diagnosis, they might be able to give you a few, you know, heuristics, a few rules of thumb, and they might be able to point you to the right page in the encyclopedia where the kind of particular ailment in question is being discussed. But ultimately, they would struggle, they'd say things like it requires intuition, it requires judgment, it requires experience. You know, I had to look the patient in the eye, I had to just, I just had a feel when I went in the room. And all of these things were, you know, are very difficult to articulate. And so, in the field of artificial intelligence, many people thought these sorts of things would be very hard to automate. If a human being cannot articulate how they perform a task, well, where on earth do we begin? People worried in in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow. Now, what's interesting is that if you look at, for instance, that medical diagnostic system I mentioned at Stanford that can tell you whether or not a freckle is cancerous as accurately as leading dermatologists, how does the system actually work? Well, it's not trying to copy the judgment of a human doctor. Now, it knows, it understands absolutely nothing about medicine at all. Uh, instead, it's got a database of about 140,000 past cases, and it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through those cases, hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo of the troubling freckle in question. It's performing the task in an unhuman way, now, based on the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. It doesn't matter, and this is the key point, it does not matter any longer that a human doctor might struggle to articulate how they make a medical diagnosis. The system is able to perform the task in a fundamentally different way. And and the reason why it can is because, just to go right back to what we were saying at the start about artificial intelligence, the reason it can is because of these advances in processing power, in data storage capability and in algorithm design, which allow this system to perform the task in a fundamentally different way to human beings. It's no longer riding on the coattails of human intelligence. And that's the big shift that's taken place. And that's why these tasks that require things like creativity and judgment and even empathy can increasingly be automated, not because these systems can be creative or can exercise judgment or can be empathetic, but because they're now able to perform these tasks in fundamentally different ways.
0: See, I'm interested. You're you're wrapping in empathy with this because, when w- I can see what you're saying about creativity and what we think of as creativity. Uh, surely that's, I mean, the whole point of empathy. It is human to human understanding. That almost within the definition of the word, mm. and it's something that is hugely valued by lots of people. So it's an important thing, and it and it's almost by definition, isn't it? It can't be done by a machine.
1: So if you, if you were to ask me, can a machine ever be empathetic? I'd say, as it stands, perhaps it could be affectively empathetic in the sense that it might be able to identify particular emotions on a human face more accurately than a human being. But is it cognitively empathetic in the sense, does it feel emotions? Probably not, no. And it's going to be some time before that happens. But in a sense, the question, can a machine ever be empathetic? It's the wrong question. The question is, can a machine perform a task that requires empathy from human beings, but perhaps perform it in a different way? And I think the answer to that is already yes. I mean, just let me give you an example. Um, Joseph Weisenbaum, who was one of the founding fathers of artificial intelligence, um, wrote a book called Computer Power and Human Reason, which is sort of a biographical, autobiographical book of his experience in the field of AI. And he opens that book with the story of uh, a system that he built called Eliza. Uh, and it was a system that he built as a bit of a joke. It was meant to um, imitate uh, what would happen. It was meant to imitate a sort of uh, uh, a psychoanalyst. So you'd sit down with Eliza and it would say, how are you feeling? Um, and you'd say, I'm feeling well. You, and then it would ask, you know, are you really feeling well? And you'd have this conversation. And it was a bit of a parody, a bit of a joke. Um, and uh, he asked his secretary to come in and have an interaction with the system. And um, she sat down and, and she knew full well the spirit in which this system had been built. And yet after a few back and forth questions, she turned around to Joseph Feisenbaum and said, Joseph, I want you to leave the room. Um, she wanted some time with the system uh, alone, uh, and this really troubled Vice and Batman, And he and he spent. And he really wanted to understand what had happened in that moment and and uh, and what was going on. But the reason I say that is because, well, look, the interaction with a human therapist, for instance, there's an interaction that we would think the core of what is going on there is some kind of empathetic interaction, and yet here is a system, an incredibly naive system built 50 years ago that appeared to offer this secretary something certainly wasn't being empathetic in the way that a human being might but it offered this secretary something that she wanted to spend a bit more time with it uh and um and when you step back and look at it you know perhaps that's right you know this was a system that wasn't empathetic so it wasn't going to judge her when she shared her problems you know you might worry that you know what is my therapist thinking about me when I share my concerns and and fears, the system wasn't doing that. And so we could, you know, write a list of how the system might be performing the task in a different way. But I suppose that's the sort of the point, which is that even tasks that require empathy from human beings, might it might be possible to perform them um, in different ways in the future through technology.
0: Uh, we haven't talked about or used the word originality in all of this so uh, i think there's someone called lady lovelace who i've not come across before so who's lady lovelace and what's her objection
1: uh well it's the it's the lady lovelace um o- objection to um uh, the 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 issue of originality comes up when we're thinking about uh the faculty of creativity um, you know The question I always ask, given that these technologies are now able to perform tasks in different ways is not can a machine perform, can a machine exercise a particular human faculty, but instead it's to what problem is that faculty, the solution and and might these systems be able to solve that problem in different ways. So creativity, the faculty of creativity, to what problem is creativity, the solution, um, well, the problem of the problem that we're trying to solve when we use our creativity is one of originality. When we want something novel, when we want something new, when we want to be taken by surprise, um, that's when we bring our creativity to bear. And so the interesting question is, can a machine, not can a machine ever be creative, but can a machine ever come up with something original? Um, and the Lady Lovelace objection is an objection, I think it was posed to to Alan Turing, uh, which was that these systems uh, could never come up with anything original. Um, and I think the great counter example to this is a, um, a system that was built by uh, DeepMind called AlphaGo, which plays the game uh, Go. Now, I don't play the game Go, but w- what I know about it is that it's combinatorially incredibly complex. And what I mean by that is the The number of possible moves in the game from the very beginning is incredibly large you know in a game like chess there's only a few possible moves you can play at the start and then after that there's only a few possible moves so the game is the possible paths that the game of chess can take are quite well bounded but in Go there are I think 64 possible moves from the beginning and then um, 63 possible moves And, and the number of possible paths the game can take is just vast and and what that meant was that many people in uh, computer science thought we were some way away from ever building a system that could beat the, uh, you know, the human champion at the game of Go. We do it in chess, um, you know, back in ninety seven, Gary Kasparov was beaten by Deep Blue. But that sort of thing, until very recently, many computer scientists thought was some way off in, in Go. And yet, that is exactly what AlphaGo managed to do relatively recently. It sat down with a man called. Lee Sedol who at the time was the world Go champion and it it beat him four games to one but the reason why this is quite an interesting moment was a particular move that the system played and it was the I think it was the 37th move in the second game Um, and I was watching the game live on on YouTube at the time and and it was really interesting that there's a rule of thumb in the game of Go and as I said I, I don't play it but I'm told any beginner knows it which is do not put a piece on the fifth line from the edge. Uh, the go board is divided up into eight vertical lines and eight horizontal lines. And so you get 64 intersections and you have to put pieces on each of these intersections. And there's a rule of thumb that any beginner knows, which says do not put a piece on the fifth line from the edge. And yet in that 37th move in the second game, that is exactly what AlphaGo did. Um, and it, and I should say it, it went on to win the game. And I, I was watching it live, and the reaction of the commentators was completely fascinating. I mean, they were speechless. They couldn't explain what had happened. Uh, One former champion called the move beautiful. Uh, Another said it brought tears to his eyes. Um, Lee Sedol himself had to step up from the board after that game and and get a breath of fresh air. Um, He was so taken aback by it. Why do I say all of this? Well, Well, because it was the sort of move that... If we had seen a human being play it, we would have said, "Gosh, you know isn't that creative, but it just feels wrong to call what that system did creative. it wasn 't exercising yeah, it, creativity, mm. but it was doing something very original, it was solving this problem of originality in a very different way but i'm, I'm sure i'm sure you 've been
0: asked this before and thought about this, but I mean that that just seems to be doing maths better than the human, but that 's not the same is it as you know let's say the discovery of the double helix, you know, Crick and Watson, which was, I think, came to one of them in a in a, in a dream when they suddenly saw this shape emerge. And there's a brilliant piece of original research or another area, you know, artistic originality and coming up with a, a, a new kind of art that breaks through barriers, uh, you know, a Picasso moment or whatever. So, so, have you drawn a distinction between different kinds of creativity and originality, some of which will remain with humans and some of which won't?
1: Yes, uh, I, th- I think that's... Um, I think the, the question, you know, what is it that we really value in a particular task? Is it that we value the outcome or is it that we value the process? So, for instance, you mentioned d- discoveries in medicine. I think what matters far more is that we make the medical discoveries, rather than the fact that they come to a human being in their dreams or in a moment of inspiration. And so to that extent, something like the alpha fold, which is a system developed by DeepMind to solve the protein folding problem in biology, I won't go into it, but it's, you know, it was until recently, one of the great unsolved problems in computational biology um no human scientist had managed to solve this problem um there are hundreds of thousands of proteins out there that uh and um it would take uh i I think it takes you know a biology student an entire phd to solve the protein folding problem for one protein uh, AlphaFold managed to do it for hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions now, uh, uh, including proteins that aren't just human proteins. It doesn't matter to me the fact that this system was doing it by you know, clever algorithm design, lots of computational power, lots of uh, data storage capability. The fact is it made those discoveries and that's what matters. It wasn't being creative, but it was solving this important problem. But when you walk into the Sistine Chapel, for instance, and look at the ceiling, you think, gosh, you know, isn't that beautiful? But you also think, gosh, isn't it remarkable that a human being created that? Um, We value um, works of art, for instance, both because of the outcome, namely that it's a beautiful thing that moves us and we find sublime and interesting and intriguing, but also the fact that it's a product of the human uh the mind, the human imagination, human capabilities and uh and the value is also in the process as well. Um just to bring it back down to earth, uh, I, I like I like coffee and I I um I always smile when it comes to uh coffee capsules which people can be quite snobbish about. Um there was a, a Michelin star restaurant somewhere in the country which um served uh, uh, you know, capsule-based coffee to its uh, to its diners, um, and what's interesting about capsule-based coffee is that in blind taste tests, very often people can't tell the difference between a coffee that comes from a, you know, say, an espresso machine, and a coffee that comes from a you know, handcrafted by a barista in a cafetière or something or whatever it might be. Uh, and yet, when these coffees were served in that restaurant, in spite of the fact that people often struggle to tell the difference, when the diners found out that it was an automated coffee generating system, they were furious, they were livid. You know how dare they sell me this uh, capsule based coffee rather than the thing handcrafted by a human being again, you know it wasn 't just the outcome, namely the taste of the coffee, that mattered; it was also the process. And I think this question of what we value in the professions—whether it's a particular outcome or whether it's the process itself—is is quite an important one. I think for many things in the profession, often what we want is just a better outcome. We want a better diagnosis. We want our taxes done more efficiently and more effectively. We want to, you know, get a better result at the end of the year in our exams. But that's not true for all parts of the professions, you know. Uh, and, and I think we can point to particular moments when we interact with the professions where the thing we really value is actually the fact that human beings are involved as well whether that is adjudicating on a difficult legal decision or supporting someone at the end of their lives uh i you know, i think it's possible to point to lots of areas of of our interactions with professions where where we value that process too
0: okay last question is on the future and i, I mean i think sort of in in some ways, this is all moving quicker than we think, and in some ways slower, isn't it? Because you know the, the professions are still there, really, <laughs> the doctors and lawyers and accountants are doing things pretty much as they used to, uh, and and yet, you know, you you've described various things that are happening, passages that we're not aware they're happening in the background that really are innovative and 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 new. So, ten twenty years from now, where are we?
1: Mm. I think while it's certainly true that lots of lawyers, lots of doctors, lots of teachers, lots of accountants. Again, if you look at the sorts of tasks and activities that people do in those different professions today, it's very different from what professionals might have done 30 years ago. You know, 30 years ago, being a nurse might have involved bedpans and, you know, bedside conversation. Today, you know, able to make prescriptions and even perform, you know, minor surgeries. And I think that's the technological story of the next decade or two in the professions, not a story of mass unemployment, but a story of almost mass redeployment, a really significant change in the sorts of tasks and activities that people will have to do to solve the sorts of problems that traditionally professionals alone have have solved. I do think, though, as you look further ahead into the 21st century, and I think this is a matter of decades, it's not a matter of centuries, that there is a question about and i think it's an important question about whether or not the change is simply going to be in the you know in the in the nature of these jobs or in the number of these jobs and and the argument that we make in the future of the professions is that it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that we're going to see as the century unfolds just a gradual decline in the demand for certain types of professionals and and uh again i don't think that's the challenge for now but i think if we're willing to look ahead not to 2020 uh, not to 2030 2040 but to 2050 and beyond that's something we're going to have to take seriously
0: well daniel suskin thank you very much for helping us uh, get a little glimpse of of where we're all headed absolutely fascinating
1: such a pleasure thanks again for having me